This session is from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. Good afternoon. How are you? Uh, this is the uh, workshop on uh, pastoral plagiarism. And uh, just a heads up, what I would like to do is uh, for this to be as interactive as possible, true workshop scenario. So I've got some things that I'm, I'm going to say, um, largely on uh, motivations for plagiarism. I think that's really key. Probably, you know, none of you are unclear on the um, the right and wrong <laughs> of plagiarism. Uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about um, plagiarism and preaching because, oddly enough, there's still some who are kind of defending that practice and uh, speaking about preaching as being uh, somewhat less strict in terms of the need to cite sources um, as we are, like in written works and those sorts of things, published works. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about you know different examples. Um, you know, the occasion of plagiarism, why it's wrong, those sorts of things. Uh, but then I really want to kind of dig into um, why our pastors may be tempted to do that or why some pastors are tempted to do that. And then if all goes according to plan, we'll have plenty of cushion on the back end for conversation. Um, so we'd love to open it up for questions. So if you've got topics uh, related to this, um, ghostwriting, that sort of thing, or um, specific questions, ethical questions related to this topic, would be a great time to, uh, to bring those up as well. So let me open up with prayer, and then uh, we'll dive right on in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of uh, truth that comes through your word. We thank you for the truth of your Son, and we ask that you would help us to be people of the truth. Father, we ask that you would help us this afternoon um, to steward this time well. I pray that it would be helpful um, to us not just to our minds, but to our hearts. Help us to be prayerful, not just about guarding ourselves from trying to make ourselves look better or bigger than we are, but um, um, to pray for others as well, that we would lift up our um, our pastors, our Sunday school teachers, um, all who would communicate and teach God's word. Help us to lift them up in prayer, that you would protect them um, from puff-uppedness, that you would keep them from uh, wanting to seem bigger than they are as well, um, because it is uh, you who deserve all the glory. And so we give that to you, and we thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, as I said, there's been recently really befuddling to me some um, defenses of, I guess, certain kinds of pastoral plagiarism. And so last night, for instance, I revisited a tweet thread um, from the last couple of months from Josh Howerton, who is um, a pastor of a church in Texas, formerly in Tennessee, a uh, very large church, one of the largest churches actually in uh, North America. So if you're wondering, like, why would we care what this guy on Twitter thinks? Um, very influential, actually, in his circles. Um, uh, kind of runs with some of the uh, tractional church big dogs and um, has a very, very large church. So he's not an inconsequential voice or in uninfluential voice. And he has done several tweet threads, actually, sort of pushing back against the idea of plagiarism in sermons, that it's kind of overblown, um, the idea of plagiarism in preaching in particular. And so I kind of revisited his um, his thread, you know, and he, he, he brought out the idea of 
um, certain ideas kind of entering the ether. He didn't use that word, so to speak, but just sort of figures of speech that just kind of seep into the vernacular. Do we need to give credit for those sorts of things? And I'll speak to that a little bit uh, this afternoon as well. But by and large, it really just seemed like trying to put up a justification of some kind for um, uh, for not caring too much about citing sources um, in preaching, finding that somewhat clunky and and uh, inconvenient. And at the end of it, even though I could sort of nod my head on certain things, you know, um, you know, who among us hasn't used certain phrases, perhaps, that are just Christianese by now? Do we need to, you know, dig in for three days trying to figure out who the source of this is, right? Um, I have been accustomed to saying things like, um, the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z of Christianity. Once upon a time, I thought, I think it was Tim Keller who said that first, and I went Googling it. I could not find that it was him who said that. Um, but at the same time, I know I didn't make it up, right? So am I on the hook every time I say that to go, somebody said, right? That sort of thing. So I can kind of nod my head about certain phrases that just sort of enter the vernacular. Is that really plagiarism or not? That sort of thing. But at the end, what I was really struck by was the approach to preaching almost as if um, in the performative sense, uh, seeing the, the preaching of a sermon as almost like a consumer product of some kind. Um, really what I walked away from revisiting his, um, his tweet thread was, um, I guess the need or the burden to be impressive, to be seen as, as a creative, to be seen as, um, you know, the originator of, of certain things, even if you're really not. Um, and so for that reason, it's, this is still a problem that keeps coming up. It certainly comes up in the publishing world. We can probably all think of, you know, you know, five examples offhand of, um, you know, prominent Christian leaders who've been caught using other people's material without credit in, in their works. Um, what is plagiarism? We should just start there. Um, if you were to Google it, you would find a definition that comes very close to something like this. Essentially, taking someone else's work or the expression of certain ideas and passing that off as your own. Um, there is, I think, two kinds of plagiarism. There is the unintentional and the intentional. And what's interesting is a lot of the cases of, of publishing plagiarism, not preaching plagiarism, but publishing plagiarism that we've seen in the Christian marketplace over the last, you know, 30 years or so, um, I think very often um, comes down to, or at least we you know, discover, is the result of sloppy writing and editing, not intentional trying to pass somebody else's work off as their own. Um, it's either editorial mishap or authorial mishap, uh, copy and pasting without bringing over citations. Um, in fact, uh, this was um, you know several years ago when Mark Driscoll, in the midst of all of his kind of you know fall uh, um, and that debacle, the the plagiarism accusations uh, that were coming out, I found those like. On the scale of things to be concerned about Mark Driscoll with, that was like really low. Like there were people that were really hammering that. And I was like, I mean, look, it's not good, but I mean, on the scale of things to get worked up about. Um, and I never believed, I never believed, um, that Driscoll intentionally plagiarized. That may surprise some. Um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, in some of the books where they were pulling out that he was quoting like Don Carson and other people without citation, um, he was quoting them and citing them in the same book elsewhere. So he's not trying to pass off, the, you know, he, he's not above citing that person. 
Secondly, if you know, if you knew much about Driscoll, um, he really liked to be seen as an academic, despite the fact that he really wasn't, right? That's the whole thing about like, I read a book a day and all that. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but probably not true. Um, you know, photographic memory. He wanted to be seen as someone who cited a lot of sources, who was really, you know, academic, really learned. And so to have a lot of footnotes would have been something that he would like to do. So, I never really believed that he was intentionally trying to pass off other people's work um, as his own. And in fact, um, Mark used um, for some of his work, I, I don't know totally all of his publishing, his, his public publishing stuff, the in-house publishing stuff, and for his preaching, um, something called the Docent Research Group. And maybe some of you have heard of Docent Research Group. There have been some um, uh, critical articles about Docent Research Group. Uh, full disclosure, I used to work for the Docent Research Group. Um, the last time I worked for them was probably about 15 years or so ago. But in the early days, there was a friend of mine who actually started the company. His name was Glenn Lucky. And it was designed as um, basically freelance research assistants for pastors. And we were told, it was, this is one of the rules coming into, um, uh, coming into the company. You are not writing sermons for pastors. Anyone who writes a sermon for a pastor will be fired. Um, now, whether certain... Uh, researchers had, you know, secret deals with their clients. I have no idea. Uh, but I knew, and the, the company policy was that you're not writing. Um, I also knew that Driscoll in using their, do, the, the docent research group, um, for a lot of in-house things and also full disclosure, I did some editorial work for Mark Driscoll through the docent research group, mostly on his in-house, um, publishing. So they would produce these short books that they used within the Mars Hill and the resurgence sort of community. They weren't published for the, uh, you know, purchase on the marketplace, that sort of thing. Uh, not trade books or anything like that. Um, I worked on a book called Pray Like Jesus, which kind of worked through the Lord's Prayer. I worked on a book um, uh, about pornography um, and, and a couple other things as, as well. Um, what I discovered kind of on the back end was that some of the plagiarism stuff that was coming through was taking docent research briefs, which always had citations, copying and pasting, and somehow the citations not coming over, copying and pasting the text of things that somehow we're now making it down the line editorial-wise without those little citations. That's an example of unintentional plagiarism. It doesn't make it right, but it does make it, it's a horse of a different color than someone who's intentionally trying to pass off somebody else's work as their own. So what I'm going to sort of drill down into is intentional plagiarism, someone who is intentionally trying to use someone else's work or ideas and take credit for it, even if just implicitly. So why is it wrong? Uh, number one, very simple, intentional plagiarism is lying. Okay, It, it is, to plain and simple, it is dishonest. It is utterly dishonest. Um, I still find this is a controversial point. I find this really strange. I'm going to address some of the pushback that some folks put up about this um, shortly, but this extends even, I'm, I'm kind of a hardliner about this. Um, I think this extends to ghostwriting as well. Um, and there will some who will say, well, I mean, that's really a different thing because you got someone else's ideas and that sort of deal. Um, I didn't even really even know this. Like, this blew my mind that this was a thing in the Christian world, that Christians would even be okay with this. Because um, it was about, it was when I was working for Docent, this was about 12 years or so ago, I got a phone call. I was asked if I would write a book for a very popular Christian author, someone who is a best-selling author. And it was the first I knew that he didn't write his own books. I was like, wait, what? 
<laughs> I was like, has he suddenly stopped or is this like always been the case, right? Um, and I thought, he doesn't write his own books. I'm not going to tell you who he is. He's not in the tribe, so to speak, but he's a pretty big name, right? Okay. Your, your mother-in-law has probably heard of this guy. Uh, <laughs> and I, I just said, now I, like, I, I, I'm not comfortable doing that. I don't, I don't think that's right. And, and then I just sat with that a while. Like, so someone writes the whole book. Obviously, I knew about ghostwriting. I just, in the Christian world, I just didn't know that it was a thing. And I didn't think it was a thing. Now, I have done editorial work um, for several guys in, in their uh, book projects. And what I'm always working with is a transcript, written material. They have a document that I'm basically doing enhanced editorial work to turn into a book quality chapter. Sometimes those guys give me credit, other times they do not. That's not part of the deal. I see it's an editor's work to kind of be in the background and help shape. If I was sitting down with a blank page, and even just like somebody was giving me ideas, I want this chapter on this and this chapter on that, and that sort of thing, and I was basically producing a written book, and then someone else put their name on it, we would all consider that dishonest, would we not? I mean, it feels dishonest. I think sometimes the only reason that we hesitate to say it's dishonest is because we know some of our favorite people employ this sort of thing. Um, th- this kind of, it pushes into a gray area of like, um, so I think this is true obviously in the secular world as well. But what about like um, speech writers, political speech writers, right? The president gets up, you know, some politician gets up, they give a speech. Wow, what a fantastic speech. Are they a liar? Because we know... They didn't write that, or at least they didn't write the bulk of it. Sometimes they're, you know, tweaking things and messing things around. Here's where I want to kind of say, well, we typically know there are speech writers. We may not know their names, but we typically know that there are staff positions, someone who is helping these, you know, folks. I think that's true in other institutional positions as well. I, I think that's more of a gray area than someone who is taking someone else's written work, putting their name on it. This is my book. Your minds may differ. But that's kind of where I'm at with the um, ghostwriting idea. So God has commanded us, of course, not to lie. He's commanded us not to steal. And passing off another's work as our own is, is a you know, disobedience of at least those two commandments. The preacher who relies on plagiarized material isn't just being dishonest. He's also stealing the hard work of another. There's some other preacher, some other pastor who's, you know, um, you know cooking up the grain during the week. Um, you know, doing his own spade work, and here's someone coming along going, well, I think I'll piggyback on on your hard work. Um, I think it's not wise, actually, to test God in this way. If only because standing up on a regular basis before God's people to declare his truth while engaging in a willful dishonesty is really a recipe for spiritual disaster. It's a, it's a kind of double-mindedness um, taking place. So a pastor who takes these kind of crooked, lazy shortcuts on such an important element of the ministry as the weekly sermon, and I'll say a little bit more about that as well shortly, um, other shortcuts will follow. If he's willing to, on the most important aspect of ministry, steal and lie, what else would he be stealing and lying about? What other shortcuts is he taking? That's Those are questions that I would want to ask. Um, here's one of the pushbacks. This was in Josh Howerton's thread as well. Uh, what if the person, the original source, gives you permission? I've got permission from so-and-so to use his outlines. This is a very famous excuse, actually, whenever somebody is caught in plagiarism. It was like, they, they knew I was using their stuff. I got permission to do it. 
Um, I, I find this really shallow. <laughs> I find this a really vapid excuse. I guess it's slightly better than just taking without their permission. At the same time, um, I remember when I was in college, I was an English major. I was in, uh, this blew my mind. I was in uh, multiple classes with education majors. And the education majors were the worst in terms of wanting to cheat. And I thought, you are the future educators, right? Like, uh, and ma- like fast forward 10 years from now, and this is happening in your class, what would you do? And there was one guy in particular, we had always ended up in the same English classes for some reason. Um, he was an education major, and he was always wanting to copy my homework. And I was always saying no. I was like, for the, you know, it did, I didn't say yes the first seven times. I don't know why you think I would say yes the eight times. Um, every single time. Now, imagine if I had said, all right, okay, fine. And I, you know, gave him my homework and he copied it out. And the teacher caught us, caught him. So I know, I know you copied Jared's homework. Could he say, well, Jared gave me permission. Would that have mattered a lick to the teacher? Oh, well, if he gave you permission to, to cheat, to, to copy <laughs> off him, that makes everything okay. Well, at the, on the, at the same, you know, rate, at the same level, having permission from someone to use their material under false pretenses with your people um, is, is still cheating. It's still dishonesty, even if you have permission to do it. Um, secondly, intentional plagiarism. This is a little more deep than just the it's lying and stealing. Intentional plagiarism is potentially disqualifying. Potentially disqualifying. I say potentially particularly because I'm thinking about um, patterns, right? Um, a pattern of this, of this work. This has become characteristic of someone's preaching. Uh, the two non-negotiable elements of the pastoral task are prayer and ministry of the word. We derive that from Acts chapter 6. There are plenty of other things, uh, important things that pastors must do, but those two are essentially what make up pastoring. And a necessary requirement for the office of the pastorate, according to 1 Timothy 3 and other places as well, is able to teach. Able to teach. It's actually, um, if you're looking at the biblical qualifications for eldership, um, the ability to teach is like the only skill set, the only thing that kind of approximates a skill set in there, uh, which I find rather notable as well. So you take the the um, the gift to teach and you surround that with all these character traits, uh, above reproach, blameless. What does that tell you, if anything, about the topic of uh, sermon plagiarism, at the very least? You have someone who's blameless, above reproach, and they're able to teach, I think you're, you're making a very big case for someone doing their own work. Um, and someone who is not doing their own work, especially as a pattern of sermon preparation and sermon delivery, um, is really bringing into question whether they are able to teach. You're, you're essentially leaning into somebody else's ability to teach every week. Um, and I don't um, take Paul to mean there or any of the other, um, you know, Peter and First Peter 5, um, you know, the other... Uh, requirements, uh, when they refer to preaching, the ability to teach, as an ability, um, as simply an, uh, uh, the gift of oratory. In fact, there's numerous places where we see kind of Paul even sets apart the power of the gospel and the, and, and the wisdom of the word against eloquent speech, right? So I don't think that makes eloquent speech sinful. It simply means that's not the point. That's not the substance of preaching. The substance of preaching is Christ crucified from the explicated word. The eloquence, the artfulness, the creativity, that's all well and good, but an adornment to the true power, which is not our well-turned phrases. The true power is Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. 
The true power is the Holy Spirit working through the word of God that he has breathed out. So if you are um, really good at talking, right, um, that doesn't necessarily mean you're able to teach. And in fact, this actually works the other way sometimes. Those of you who've ever, um, you know, tried to recruit elders or things like that, and you've got guys like, man, I don't want to get up on a, in a, a pulpit. I'm not really known for. And you say, look, this is not about being the best guy on stage. This isn't about, you know, being able to in 35 minutes deliver a cohe. It's about you can clearly communicate the word of God. And so for some guys, that means, man, you're great in a Sunday school room. You're great in the, in the discipleship encounter. You, you, you know the word of God well. You can communicate it clearly. You, you know, things aren't more confused after you leave than they are before you got there, right? That's what able to teach really means in, in this regard. And so the person who's in t- engaging intentionally in plagiarism over time is basically eroding their credibility in the gift of ability to teach, of able to teach. Uh, and thus they're eroding their own qualification to hold the office um, of pastor. Um, thirdly, intentional plagiarism is unpastoral. Intentional plagiarism is unpastoral. <clears throat> and this is what I mean by that. Um, faithful preachers have their congregations in mind when they're preparing their sermons. Uh, this is what I meant when I said, you know, some of the defenses of, of plagiarism or kinds of plagiarism kind of treat the sermon like a commodity, like a consumer product. Well, it worked for that guy at his church, so I'll just I'll take that material. Why wouldn't it work here? As if each sermon is just sort of a utilitarian plug-and-play sort of thing. But those of you who preach week in and week out, you know that's not what real preaching is, right? There may be bits of wisdom. This is why we say so-and-so said this, or I read so, you know. There may be bits and pieces you take from commentaries and other preachers perhaps, but by and large, you're doing your work for your people, right? This is what a homiletical outline, I teach my students when we go through the preaching section, you have an exegetical outline is what does the text mean? What does the text say? What does the text mean? The homiletical outline is what is God saying from this text to these people? So you're not changing the meaning of anything, but you're essentially applying it to your context. What is God saying to uh, from this text to these people? Now, if it's just a plug-and-play deal, then it's not really about these people. At the same time, even if the content isn't necessarily um, different, applications and those sorts of things, uh, and just the own spiritual weight you bring to preaching is different when you're doing your own work because you have your own people in your heart. You you know who's struggling this week or every week. You know you you know the hardships, you know the suffering, you know the grief, you know the joys, you know the celebrations of the people in your church, and you are bringing them in the um, furnace of your sermon prep. They're informing how you're saying things. They're informing the your expression. Oh, I know I shouldn't use this kind of language because this would be over the heads of my people. Or I shouldn't use this kind of language. It's sort of under. My people will feel sort of like I'm being condescending if I use that sort of language. You know, it's kind of under their, their level. Um, I know not to use too many, you know, sports illustrations because my people, they don't, you know, uh, care at all about sports or, you know, that kind of deal. Um, I had to think about that a lot at my, uh, um, at my last church. Uh, I was in Vermont in the men's discipleship context, especially. Um, there were guys like, they nodded at sports, but like, they just didn't care. And we used, uh, from one of our men's training sessions, I used uh, a Tony Evans video series where almost every single time it was an illustration from football. <laughs> and like in week four, the guys were like, 
is it another football illustration? You know, it's like, like they're aware of football. Um, and it's not because they're like unmanly men or anything like that. These are like all blue collar guys. It's just, they don't, you know, care about football. There's no time for sports in their life, out on the farm and everything else. And I thought, okay, um, content was good. Application context probably wasn't the best. I need to find, you know, somebody else who's kind of actually speaking to where they're at. And that's the problem when you're just sort of kind of pulling in other voices, other resources, and certainly other works. Um, the pastor who's preparing his own work is praying for his people, uh, as many of them by name as possible. When they're reading on the text, they're thinking about how it's going to land with certain people in their church. Obviously, the larger your church, the harder this is to do. But if you're just in the, you know, you're in the pastor work, so to speak, it, it, it shapes, um, you know, it shapes your sermon preparation and it shapes your sermon delivery as, as well. Faithful preachers write sermons for their people. Plagiarists think that somebody else's leftovers will suffice. Um, this is the cliche that's often seen. Um, Howerton used it as well. Well, if my bullets fit in your gun, right? Willie, you ask if you can use one of my sermons, and I'm like, brother, you don't even need to cite me. If my bullets fit in your gun, you know. And I just want to say, first of all, when did preaching become about shooting people? All right. <laughs> That's the first thing. I'm kind of like, I don't know why the bullets in the gun is the best illustration. I mean, I guess like the, the word is a sword, I guess. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but also, if you're always using somebody else's bullets, I'm wondering why I'm watching you shoot when I should be watching them shoot, right? Aren't you my pastor or are they my pastor? What would you think about the shepherd who relied on someone else's work to feed his sheep? If he couldn't be moved to do the hard work of feeding the flock himself, you might think after a while that he didn't actually love them and that he sees pastoral ministry as in some way just sort of a, um, I don't know, resource provision or even a performance. And there's a lot of guys actually who treat pastoral ministry that way. And in fact, among those who plagiarize the most, you typically find that pastoral ministry is for them just a platform, a position on a ladder of some kind that they really enjoyed the cachet of the role more so than actual the, the hard work of the role. Uh, fourthly and finally, in this little part, <clears throat> intentional plagiarism misunderstands the goal of preaching. Intentional plagiarism misunderstands the goal of preaching. As I said, um, preaching is not a performance. Now, certainly there is an aspect, there is a performative aspect to it. I want to be rightly understood here. Um, those of you who preach, your voice is different when you preach, yes, than when you're just talking to somebody in a hallway. And and that's kind of what I mean by there is a performative aspect to it. You use gestures in a particular way. I'm much more mindful when I'm in the pulpit delivering a sermon about what my hands are doing. I'm very mindful about my facial expressions. I'm mindful about the, the modulation of my voice, much more than if I'm just talking to you in the hallway and ha- having a conversation. Um, I manuscript my sermons. Because as an extemporaneous speaker, I'm a little wobbly. I say, um, a lot when I'm trying to chase my next thought. When I manuscript, I eradicate all of that stuff. If I'm working from notes like I am today, you'll find that I'm, what am I going to say next? I'm kind of thinking what I'm going to say. Or I say, um, or er, or ah, and those sorts of things a lot. Those are kind of my verbal tics, my crutches. I manuscript, so I get rid of all that. I don't want, I want to, uh, you know, remove every barrier that I can between um, the word of God and people's ability to hear it and to understand it and get the sense of it. So in that sense, preaching is kind of performative. Or there is a performative aspect to it. But the substance of preaching is not performance. It's not an act. And really, the 
you know, the heart of this is, um, you know, it's not an act um, in in your own heart um, by answering the question, do I really believe this? <laughs> do I really believe it? Or am I just using it because it's my job? Or am I just kind of going through the motions because I've gotten good at this? Or I like the, the approval I get when I do this. People say I'm good at this. I like the validation that comes from this. Do you really believe it? The goal of preaching is not to be impressive. The goal of preaching is to, as in Nehemiah chapter 8, to give the sense that people would understand the word of God, that they would worship Christ from having heard the word of God. It's neat that I'm talking about performance and performative and all this guy's taking photos or video. Of me. It's not performative at all. A, the, the goal of preaching is that people would behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And the, the fantastic thing about that is you don't have to be a super gifted speaker. Um, you don't have to be really creative. You don't even have to be like a learned academic. All you have to do is know Jesus and be able to communicate his word. I think of the, the conversion of Charles Spurgeon, right, in that primitive Methodist chapel, where he um, he assumed it was, I think, a, a boot black or somebody who kind of walked in because there was a snowstorm and the regular preacher hadn't shown up. Do you remember the story? And so some poor sap gets up there because there's got to be a sermon. Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And this guy just started circling around what it means to look, to look unto God, to look unto Christ. And um, from Spurgeon's recollection, it wasn't a very advanced exposition. It was not very articulate. He just kept saying, it doesn't take a whole lot to look. It doesn't take a great pain to look. You don't have to be rich to look or smart to look. You just have to look. And it was in that moment that Charles Spurgeon was converted to Jesus Christ. He said, I felt I looked as if I could look my eyes away. In this... Sub-preacher, sub-par preacher, what did that guy have? He had the true Christ, and he just preached the true Christ. If you have the true Christ, you, you can com- uh, uh, communicate the word of God. That is what you need. A- another Spurgeon story I've always appreciated. Um, this is said to be his grandfather, who was also a preacher. Um, Spurgeon, Charles, was late at a speaking engagement of some kind, and um when it was time for someone to preach, his grandfather took the pulpit. Anyone heard this story? Maybe I'm making it. Uh, I know I'm not making it up. I'm not. <laughs> um, and uh, began to preach. And then finally Charles showed up. And his grandfather says, here's my grandson, Charles. He can preach the gospel better than I can. And he said, but he cannot preach a better gospel. Can you, Charles? Right. Uh, and it's true, brothers. I mean, H.B. Uh, Charles can preach better than any of us. Right. Uh, um, uh, John Piper can preach better than any of us. John MacArthur can preach better than any of us. But they cannot preach a better gospel. We have the same gospel. So um, if you have the gospel, you have all that you need. And and therefore, you can fulfill the aim of preaching. You may not be as good a preacher as as the guy across the block. Maybe not the, you know, none of us are as great as all the celebrity guys. But, um, you know, you may you may know, like, I listen to the other guy's podcast. And, man, I'm surprised people still come to my church, right? Uh, There's probably a couple reasons for that. They hear the true gospel at your church. And also you love them. They know that you love them. They've understood the assignment, which is that you've understood the assignment, not to impress them, but to love them and preach Christ to them. Okay, so those are all the reasons why we should not engage in intentional plagiarism. Here are a couple of uh, ways to avoid it. How do I avoid intentional plagiarism? Um, 
Sight. Give credit. It's very simple. Uh, when in doubt, give credit. When not in doubt, give credit. Right? Most preachers understand that re-preaching someone else's sermon is not just dishonest. It's also kind of weird. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's kind of weird. Um, it's, it's actually more of the little elements of the sermon that sometimes have the feel of kind of, is this a gray area? Like we know, you know, like if you just went over to desiringgod.com and pulled off John, you know, John Piper's sermon and just preached that whole thing without giving credit, that's wrong and stupid and weird. But what about little snippets? What about little snatches of things? Um, I'll tell you something that's, that's also weird. Using someone else's personal stories in the first person as if they happen to you. I cannot put my brain in the brain of, of the head of somebody who does that. Uh, I, I don't know that I've ever encountered it. I believe that it happens because I just hear enough people say that, that they've heard it happen before. That's so strange. So I, I don't want to assume that it's exceedingly rare, but if any of you are ever tempted to do that, don't do that. It's really weird. Okay. Um, and it's not, it's not difficult to just say so-and-so told a story once about blah, blah, blah. And you, now you're just telling the story third person. I mean, it'll have the same impact. It, you know, it really will. Um, it's sometimes those little elements that have the feel of grayness to them. How do you know when to um, attribute certain turns of phrases or popular sentiments? The ABCs of Christianity, right? Versus the A to Z. If you're not sure about the source of a particular line or passage, do your due, uh, due diligence in looking it up. If you, um, if you know that someone originated the phrase, but you can't locate the source. So one of the things that Howerton did in his article was show all the examples of different people used, um, quoting, um, what was it? Churn your own milk, but, or churn someone else's milk, make your own butter or something. I don't remember what the phrase is. It was basically about sermons. And like, there were like eight different attributions. So someone had it attributed to H.B. Charles. Someone had it attributed to, um, uh, uh, to deal moody. Somebody, I mean, it was like, it went way back. All these different people said this same phrase. Now it's likely that all those people did say that phrase at some point in a sermon. Cause it's one of those things that just sort of goes out there. Right. Um, you know, don't be the rooster who thinks the sun's coming up because he's crowing. Right. Um, you know, you drop things like that. Well, you didn't originate that phrase. And most people kind of understand probably, especially if it's in kind of the vernacular that you didn't make that up. Um, but when in doubt, say, as someone said, it, it doesn't harm anything. It doesn't hurt anything. Um, especially if you are inclined to like, man, I really think so-and-so said this. Or um, if it's a pretty creative phrase, a pretty unique phrase. If it's cliches that are just in the culture, um, I think it becomes less of an issue. But at the very least, if you can't locate a source, you can say, as someone once said, or as they say, or something like that. Uh, again, this hurts nothing. The only thing this that uh, this might hurt is the impression that you're more clever than you actually are. Right? <laughs> so if you're not worried about that, then there's no harm at all. Uh, you don't have to give a citation on page 47 if it's, of his commentary. So it's all right because it's not the same kind of work as a book. But you know, if you're quoting a commentary or, or reference, you should say Tomasino says this. Um, I think also you can also just say one commentator notes. Um, it's, it's kind of the preacher's sort of discretion, uh, particularly if you're using, if it's a, if it's a good quote or a good insight, but it's from a source that you don't necessarily want to endorse to all of your people. Have you ever been in that position? Depending on what it is. So depending on the, the audience. So for instance, N.T. Wright, do I agree with him on justification? No. 
There's some insights in the historical Jesus I find really helpful. He's a defender of the, of the bodily resurrection of Christ in the world of the Jesus Seminar, which is super helpful on, on the apologetics front, those sorts of things, historic Christianity. Depending on the crowd, I might say one scholar says, da, 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 I mean, and not saying anti right because just saying his name, people go, oh, anti right he's a heretic, you know, and they start to freak out. But in other crowds, I might say anti right says, it just depends. You kind of know your people, know your audience. Um, there may be situations like that. Um, the other way to avoid this is to just do your own work. Do your own work. There's nothing substantially satisfying in passing off another's hard work as your own. It might land well. It might get great feedback. It might move people. It might generate laughs and tears. It might generate the applause that you crave. But you know deep down that this is just performative, that, it, that it's dishonest, actually, that you didn't really earn any of that, that in a way it's just, it's just a sham. Um, I even advise, so in, in the preaching sections of, of, um, of my courses and in my residency, as we work through sermon prep, um, I always tell the guys, don't look at commentaries or reference works. Don't look at secondary sources until after you have an exegetical outline in place. Um, in, in, in essence, you're checking your work. Don't immediately go, okay, well, who, what does so-and-so say about this before you begin doing your own spade work? Because you're, you're, you're putting your ability to teach to the test. You're putting that to work. Um, and you won't get better at that. You won't become a better exegete of the word if you don't do your own work week to week, week to week. The only exceptions that I would make is on specific references, things in the text that you just, you can't make heads or tails of. I mean, there's a geographical reference. There's some sort of name or something that you're like, I, I don't know what that is. I don't know who this is. I don't know where that is. You could look up to, to situate yourself. But in terms of how to break down the text, like how to actually, um, you know, um, exegete the text, go to secondary sources last. And then it's fun, actually, because you're checking your work. You're going to those sources. You're seeing some guys out of these great scholars, people you really trust and respect. They have the same insights as you. And, man, what a, like, that's so awesome. Wait, you're saying, you know, Tom Schreiner had the same insight that I had? That's fantastic, right? Um, or sometimes they're saying things like, man, I didn't see that at all. And you gotta, and it sends you back into the text to go, why didn't I see that? Um, it doesn't mean that they're wrong, um, you know, that they're right and you're wrong, but it just means you need to redouble your efforts. You, you're now coming back. But you see what it does. It's, 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 it's making you do your own work, you know, to actually be doing your own digging and kind of sorting, uh, through the text rather than just immediately going and borrowing somebody else's outline or somebody else's, um, idea of it. So remember that the ministry of the word is the primary task of the pastor. This means other things may need to take a secondary seat. In some small church or bivocational settings, you may need to be diligent to train your church to minister well to each other rather than relying totally on you to be their only supply of ministry. But do whatever you can to prioritize the word and start as early as you can in preparing the preaching. All right, let me move quickly ahead to why might a preacher plagiarize his sermons? Why might a preacher uh, plagiarize his sermons? Number one, he feels an immense pressure to perform. He feels an immense pressure to perform, either from his own congregation or just his own pressures, his own comparison of himself to all the guys in the podcasts or TV or the conference circuit or whatever it is. Um, sometimes the congregations are not helpful. They'll let you know that wasn't great, you know, um, <laughs> or it, it wasn't like the last guy or whatever it is. You just feel the pressure to, uh, to perform. If this is you, here's what to do. Repentance entails remembering that Christ's kingdom is bigger than your own, that we aren't called to be successful, but rather to be faithful, 
and that catering to customers is inferior as a strategy to the Lord's call upon us to feed his lambs. Um, second reason pastors may be tempted, he doesn't think he has enough time in the week to prepare. I just don't have enough time. This could be true of full-time vocational pastors. It's certainly true of those who are bivocational or who serve as lay pastors. And they just think, man, it's Saturday that I really even have time to sit down and look at this thing. Uh, some pastors may claim they have resorted to preaching other people's sermons because they simply do not have adequate time in their ministry schedules to do their own work. This is one of the most common excuses, actually. And there's a couple from my own life of guys who've been caught doing this. And this is usually what they say. I just I didn't have time. And I just was pushed every week, you know, to do you know different things. And the, the burden of the church's expectations and the sermon just kept taking more and more, um, you know, short shrift in my in my schedule. Um, you, you have to prioritize preaching and you have to help your people understand that the primary task of the pastor is prayer and ministry of the word. Um, that your primary responsibility to them is to preach the word of God faithfully to them. And that means you need to have dedicated time. Now, you may not have all the time you want, right? It would be fantastic if we had three days out of every week to just spend, you know, drinking coffee and reading commentaries. Oh, what a joy that would be, right? For some of you, that sounds like a nightmare. But uh, for a lot of guys I know, that's like what they would love Monday through Friday to just be up in their office and all by themselves with a bunch of books. Uh, you you got to be doing the pasture work, right? you got to be shepherding people and... Um, but you also have to prioritize this. Uh, in, in my last role, I, I dedicated one whole day um, to sermon prep, and I wanted an outline by the end of that day. Uh, and that was it, because I was a solo pastor, uh, solo vocational pastor anyway. I was a solo staff person. I didn't have you know, um, an assistant or secretary or anybody else. It was just me. So if somebody's calling the church, I'm the one answering the phone. If, you know, some of you are, um, are in positions like that. It's just hard to find the margin to, to do... You know, a conference quality, you know, plenary session every single week, which is sometimes what we think we got to do. No, brothers, all you have to do is make sure you're faithful to the text, preach Christ, love your people. It's not a performance. So the, the time that's given to you, prioritize well. Um, if that's you, you find yourself kind of crunched for time every single week. Depending on your uh, particular situation, the specifics of your strategy may differ from others. But in every case where this is the excuse, Repentance looks like reprioritization, remembering that the sermon is vitally important and your pulpit ministry is super important for the life of your church. It's steering for your church. It's shaping for your church. So you need to give good time to it. Uh, number three, the people who provide the material he's plagiarizing say it's okay. I kind of covered this already. They feel like they have permission. Uh, we explained why um, that's a bad um, why that's a bad excuse. Uh, if this is you, hey, they gave me permission to do it. You need to repent of borrowing your ethics from unscrupulous people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the drug dealer will always tell you it's great to buy drugs. Okay. Number four, it, it takes you way too long and it feels way too difficult to write original sermons every week. So it's not necessarily you don't have the time. You just find it really laborious. It's really difficult. And every week it's like pushing a boulder up a hill. Um, let me just, in the three minutes I have left, give you a little bit of a gut check. Um, certain texts are more difficult than others. Some weeks it's harder to prepare a sermon than it is other weeks. If you find week after week, month after month, even year after year, you've got to pull yourself, push yourself to get into the Word and prepare a sermon. It's the last thing you want to do every week. It's, it's a great labor for you. 
It almost feels like going against the grain. It could be that you are not called to this office. doesn't mean you're a bad person. Um, it doesn't mean you can't faithfully contribute to the church. But it probably means that you shouldn't be a preacher. Um, it's just, you know, I, I don't know that about you. I don't know you. So don't hear me saying that's you. Uh, but it's a it's a gut check moment. If this is a characteristic, it is a pattern. I don't mean, man, it's been a rough couple weeks or it's a rough season or something like that. Uh, but those who are gifted and called to preach, they love to preach. They may not be, you know, they may not be good at it yet, but they love to do it, right? And it takes a long time to get good at anything. Um, you know, don't hold yourself up in year one to the example of somebody who's in year twenty and so on and so forth. Um, Keep plugging away. But typically, people who are called to preach and gifted to preach really love to do it, whether they're good at it or not. And and they get better at it because they just feel the Lord's pleasure as they do. Okay. I'm going to stop there. That was actually long. I mean, I thought I'd planned for 30 minutes, and here I am at 42. Um, that's the kind of story of my life. When I manuscript, it's shorter. There's another reason to manuscript. When I'm working from notes, I always go longer. Uh, anybody with a question that might take a couple minutes? Yes, sir. I think the most difficult thing for me in preaching is in terms of not plagiarizing, not because I do it, but the, to, to know how to not cross that line would be uh, via illustrations. Mm-hmm. So what would be your general guidelines for how to be cautious with those? Well, if you find that you can't come up with your own illustrations, like that's the gold standard, right? The Holy Grail is that you come up with your own, your own um, illustrations. Um, if it's a story borrowed from somewhere, um, you credit the story or the author. If it's an illustration you've got from somebody else, uh, so for I'll give you an example. One of my most used illustrations is the man from Moab, which is sort of a fictionalized depiction of the a Moabite gazing upon the temple in Jerusalem and, and talking to an Israelite. He wants to go into the temple, and the Israelite saying, "Oh, you can't do that." And it's this great story. It comes from John Phillips' commentary on Hebrews. Old, my, this is on my dad's bookshelf. The old <coughs> Moody, Moody Press. It's falling apart. The glue's falling out of the book, and everything. Um, I use that in multiple sermons because it just speaks to our alienation from God apart from Christ and um, access to him through the gospel. And I always just say, this comes from John Phillips' commentary on Hebrews. doesn't hurt anything at all. I, I've, I've never felt like getting to the end of the illustration. People are like, that was really diminished by knowing where it came from. You know? <laughs> right? The only thing that's really diminished is people thinking I somehow you know, wrote that myself or made it up myself. Um, yeah, just always find a way to, you know, to cite the source. And it doesn't have to be overly formal. Um, you know, in your manuscript, you may put a footnote. This was on page whatever, because that helps you later. But you're not, you know, giving a footnote while you're speaking. You're just saying, in the Lord, you know, in Fellowship of the Ring, Tolkien writes about this. Or you just say, in the, in, in the Fellowship of the Ring, Fran, you know, Sam and Frodo went to blah, blah, blah. You know, just showing people where you got it. Um, you know, if it's a cultural piece, uh, in my, uh, I preached yesterday morning in a church in Apex. I used uh, an, an uh, illustration from a movie uh, from 1917, the World War I. I don't know if anyone's seen 1917. Um, I didn't say, like, directed by and written by. You know, I just said, in the movie 1917, that's the source of the, of the story. It's pretty, you know, easy to do that. But if you're, you know, the gold standard is coming up with your own illustrations. And I like to push myself sometimes to kind of come up with my own stories and stuff from your own life. So that way you know, you know, that's from your own experience. Um, yeah, it's okay to do that. I'll take one more and then we'll, okay. yes, sir. Have you ever had to, have you ever done something where you've had to apologize to your congregation? Mm. Hey, I might have said something and I think that I didn't give proper credit. I'm sure I have. I can't think of an example uh, of a time, but I wouldn't put it past me to have done that. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, if I could think of a specific incident, but I'm sure there's been a time. I know I've apologized to my congregation, <laughs> yeah. I think, about that specifically. I don't know, but but maybe, yeah. I know one time I mentioned, um, like, an idiot. It was offhand. It was something about, um, I said something like, all the disciples were single or something stupid like that. And then later I was like, oh, wait, no, Peter, has, you know. Uh, and I, I, I just knew people were going to be like, man, our pastor doesn't know the Bible. You know, like they would be. <laughs> so I was very quick the next time I was up to say, hey, I misspoke last time. I, you know, I, you know. So I, I've, I've apologized for or corrected things before, whether it referred to sources. I, I'm not sure, but it, it could be there, did that. Yeah. And I think you should be willing to do that. All right. Uh, if anyone has any questions or they want to ask anything, you can hang out afterwards. I'll, I'll hang out long enough uh, for you guys to do that. Otherwise, I think I'm supposed to let you go. It says to please end on time in big, bold, red letters. So um, thank you, Lord, for these people. I pray that you give us a great conference together and a great week. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.